Welcome to the Droma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association or JOMA podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician, and I'm really honored and really excited to be here today with Rabbi Doron Lazarus. Can I call you Doron? Yes, you definitely can. Thank you. Doron is a leading sleep expert, thought leader, and author of two books. Doron is the founder and director of Executive Sleep Consulting, an online sleep practice specializing in digging deep to find solutions for hard-to-treat sleep issues. He's also dedicated to his community in South Bend, Indiana, where he serves as the spiritual leader for the Midwest Torah Center and has experience in education on every level. He is the proud author of two books, one on Jewish medical ethics, Sources Revealed, and on Jewish mindfulness, Don't Mind If I Do. That's a great title. (laughs) Where he explores the intersection of faith, science, spirituality, and psychology. He is a rapid transformation hypnotherapist. I don't know what that is, and I hope we get to that. And outdoor enthusiast. He is a native of San Diego, where he grew up as the child of two medical professionals. After gaining his BSc from UCLA in psychobiology, his view of health and medicine was thrown a curveball when he struggled with his own insomnia and was desperately seeking help for this condition. It was only when he realized that his solution lay within, and he embarked on the next 15 years researching sleep, psychology, and the power of the human mind. He cured his own insomnia and now helps people around the world do the same. He gives talks around the country and is interviewed on magazines and podcasts many times throughout the year. So this is awesome. I love your your multi-faceted background. I actually majored in behavioral biology in college, so we overlap there. Amazing. Yeah. So sleep is really important. I always say there's like the triumvirate of health, sleep, diet, and exercise. And so we already have a talk. I didn't do it. My colleague, who's also a pediatrician, Jenny Berkovich, um, interviewed a sleep specialist for children. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm more familiar with, you know, the self-soothing in children, small children and the teenagers that, you know, stay up all night on, on the on their phones. Um, but we need to um, branch out to grownups, I think. Right. Absolutely. Their parents need to be well-rested as well. Yes, yes. And teenagers, too. You do teenagers as well, right? You don't do children. I do kids, like, starting at maybe seven or eight and up. Really? So I, I, I don't do babies and I don't do toddlers, but when they get a little bit older, we I, I do work with them. Interesting. So I want to talk about why sleep is important, but even before that, I want you to tell me what is a sleep coach and how it differs from other specialists in the sleep field. That is a great question. I love, I love that question very much. So sleep coaching means a lot of different things to a lot of people. So I'm not going to define what it means in the world. Some people are, you know, kind of infant sleep coaches and they'll, uh, you know, help your baby sleep. Um, mm-hmm. you know, some, some sleep coaches are kind of focused on very much one approach in sleep, you know, treating usually insomnia is where sleep coaches come in. Um, I've really kind of taken my background in sleep coaching and really tried to broaden my experience to really help a variety of sleep issues. So I'm working 
most predominantly on the behavioral and cognitive side of sleep, whether it's people that are just, you know, having life, stress, anxiety, tension, and that's preventing them sleeping, whether it's specifically what I find very often is that the anxiety around sleep itself kind of mm-hmm. morphs into its own beast working on that. Um, and, you know, sometimes we're doing more deeper cognitive work. Sometimes it's going back, um, you know, to really figuring out where they're in this schism in their life and they're out of sync and out of harmony. Sometimes it's involved in kind of dabbling in marriage and business coaching because those elements of their life are preventing them from sleeping well. So, and, and also we've, you know, we deal with, um, sometimes more biochemical issues as well as apnea and snoring. So my kind of base of sleep coaching, mm-hmm. it's it's fun. I really enjoy it. I get to work with a lot of different people. I never know exactly what I'm going to, you know, going to have on any given day. Um, but I really try to use it as sleep as the foundation for our physical and mental health, really getting everything on board to allow people to sleep their best. Which is amazing. And I haven't heard of anybody quite as, you know, diverse an approach as yours. Who else is out there, though, doing sleep? I mean, we mentioned a pulmonologist, right? A sleep specialist. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's a great question that I get a lot because, you know, if someone, God forbid, breaks their hand, you know, they know who to go to. You know, you're not like, uh, I'm not going to a homeopath if I break my hand. No, no, uh, you know, no insult to homeopath. But, you know, you go to the ER, you'll go to, uh, you know, a, a bone doctor or whatever needs to be done and they'll reset the cast. But when it comes to sleep, Really, the question is, why aren't you sleeping? And depending on that question, you'd really have to understand where you want to go. A lot of people, what the typical route is, is they'll go to their their GP. Mm-hmm. And this is really where I see things either do well or break down. Um, unfortunately, a lot of GPs are not well-trained mm-hmm. to understand complex sleep issues. Right. So the number one mistake I says, oh, you can't sleep. Here's Trazodone. Here's Ambien. Here's Lunesta. You know, even though they realize it's not a great fix, GPs want to help. They do want to help people. And if they don't, if they're not set up, you know, they're there for 15 minutes, you know, they right. have a, you know, a line of patients, you know, this, this is what I have. So, you know, here's this medication. And oftentimes people come to me after that medication has started. Now they say, well, I don't want to be on medication. I'm having negative side effects of medication. It's not working anymore. I want a natural solution. Right. Um, or, but, or I don't but, want medication from the get-go. Or from the get-go. Yeah. Right. Certainly I, I get that a lot. Um, from there, let's say the GP says, well, maybe I, maybe, or maybe I will or won't give you medication, but let me send you somewhere else. So depending on the GP and depending on, you know, how sensitive they are to the topic and how much they can, you know, kind of have time to feel that out, mm. maybe they'll send them to a generalized therapist because they figure, you know, maybe they're just depressed. Maybe they're struggling with generalized anxiety and they'll send them to a generalized therapist. They might send them to a sleep clinic. Um, which itself has, you know, mixed results depending on what kind of case they're dealing with. They might send them to a, like a, uh, you know, more of a psychologist that's trained in insomnia. So typically, you know, looking at cognitive behavioral therapy, um, you know, depending on what that issue is, but that's usually where people will kind of first branch out in their exploration to be able to sleep. Right. When you say sleep clinic, who are the professionals? Is it like a multidisciplinary clinic? Yeah. Um, usually, you know, most sort of say sleep clinics around the country mm-hmm. depend, you know, they're, they're really kind of divided. You know, there's the sleep lab side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, generally when they're looking for things like apnea, mm-hmm. that's usually where, you know, the gold standard is going into the sleep lab. They have, you know, very high, you know, expensive diagnostic equipment and they'll sit, you know, sit you down and they'll have techs coming in and adjusting CPAP machines if they do detect apnea. So, the, and, you know, that's usually overseen by a sleep specialist 
specialist, which, you know, might be a subspecialty of pulmonology or sometimes neurology, you know, depending on which way they're taking it. And then they have techs that are usually running that show. And then on the side of that, usually the sleep clinic themselves will have quote unquote, you know, psychologists or therapists okay. of that respect that if they, if they realize it's not a, apnea issue it's mm -hmm. not narcolepsy it's not anything inherent biochemical it's more behavioral which i believe that most sleep issues right. are then they'll usually have some kind of you know hopefully you know some kind of more um more, more therapeutic option uh, to be able to deal with that so do you have cases where the doctor put the patient on a sleep medication without looking into sleep apnea and then you say hey you might have sleep apnea I've seen all sorts of crazy things happen uh -huh. <laughs> from the medical world. Cause, um, right. You know, oftentimes, you know, people will have generalized symptoms. So let's say they come to me mm -hmm. or they come to anybody and they say, I'm feeling very exhausted during the day. Mm -hmm. So that could be a hundred things. And obviously, right. you know, in the medical world, there's a protocol of, you know, testing for certain deficiencies or diseases, God forbid. But if it doesn't kind of come out anything acute, if the blood work comes out normal, there's no clear, you know, indication of any, you know, uh, negative pathology or anything. So at that point, the question is why the doctor might send them to a sleep clinic. Right. But let's say they say, look, I feel like I'm, you know, my sleep is fractured. I'm kind of waking up a few times, you know, throughout the night. I feel exhausted in the morning. The doc might think, again, depending on his experience and his sensitivity, he might think, well, let me give you a sleeping pill. That'll help you sleep better. Mm -hmm. But if the, and I have seen this before, if the issue is really apnea, he's actually making the problem now worse. Right. <laughs> right. You know, he's actually just ignoring the, uh, you know, the root cause of it. Um, right. There is a, there's a new book put out. I believe it's called The Eight Hour Myth. I believe it's called The Eight Hour Myth. I'll double confirm that where there's a, a medical professional that specializes in apnea and he describes that getting eight hours is not the magic solution to your sleep problems. Right. It's a question about the quality of your sleep. Right. Um, and therefore, yes, I have seen that people on sleep medication when really they didn't have insomnia, they didn't need sleep medication, they really had apnea and, you know, they just weren't, nobody was sensitive to kind of pick that up. And that's, you know, where we, we try to do that. Right. So when you suspect undiagnosed apnea, and I'm just going to put in a plug for the doctor to see the doctor first so that you don't miss that. Um, and maybe if you could talk a little bit more about apnea later, it'll be, you know, help awareness for people who don't know why they would suspect they might be having apnea. Um, do you refer to a sleep specialist? Yeah, you know, so in general, when someone comes to me, mm. most people that come to me have already seen a whole slew of doctors. But usually my first protocol, if they haven't, is I, is I ask them to get to get checked out. You okay, know, I, and, I, and I realize, and that's a very healthy boundary, I am mm -hmm. not a, a licensed medical doctor. Right. I work in collaboration with a mm -hmm. lot of you know, healthcare professionals, but it's very good for them, you know, to have a connection with their doctor, right. you know, get checked out, making sure there's nothing, you know, kind of more more linear that Western medicine is really good at picking up and treating right. um, going on there. And then, you know, come and talk to me. So it, most people, you know, when it comes to apnea, there's really, you know, let's say someone says, I, I don't know, do I have apnea or not? I essentially explain to them that there's two, um, there's two ways of going about things. The gold standard, like I said, is going into a sleep clinic. It's going into a sleep lab. It's getting tested. And then you really have to understand from there what your options are. So if you have moderate or severe sleep apnea, they're probably in the sleep lab going to recommend a CPAP machine, right? That is, you know, the gold standard machine that you wear. Wait, I just want to go back for just a minute. And why would someone suspect that they have sleep apnea? Good. What would that okay. look to someone so, before we get so to what we do about it? 80% of the sleep apnea cases in the United States and around the world are undiagnosed. 
Now, sleep apnea is actually more prevalent in countries like the United States and other Western countries mm-hmm. where we also have an obesity problem. Right. Too much food leads to obesity, which is a pandemic within itself in this country right, and, right. and in the most of the Western world. So that exacerbates the apnea. Um, usually if people either, um, they're either waking up frequently during the night mm-hmm. or they're, um, they have, you know, they're snoring, which is oftentimes snoring and apnea go together and they're, and or they're exhausted during the day. Usually, you know, or they say, you know, my, my wife tells me I feel like, like she hears me gasping in the middle of the night. Right. Like those are all pretty strong indicators that, you know, there's apnea. So let's say, you know, there are obviously risk factors. If a 65 year old overweight male comes to me and says, my wife tells me I stores and I feel exhausted all day. You know, I mean, the, all, all of the arrows, you know, point right. towards apnea versus, you know, if an 18 year old slim female tells me she feels exhausted, although it might be apnea. Mm-hmm. Chances are not, you know, it's, it's, you know, usually there's a lot of the, the risk factors involved. So I recommend that people, you know, really become proactive. Apnea is, um, it's definitely treatable in a lot of ways and left untreated, it mm. can wreak havoc on our health system. I mean, it's linked to all sorts of things, right. including, and this is, this is a tricky one. It's actually linked to obesity because, you know, as you mentioned in kind of this uh, triangle of health, right. weight, you know, and, and eating and, and sleep, those two things are inextricably linked. When we're sleeping poorly, we're not metabolizing properly. Our whole body, the, the mm-hmm. whole system is thrown off. We're gaining weight. And then the more we gain, the more apnea we have. And then it's like that, you know, that, that vicious cycle. So yes, I mean, it's definitely something really I recommend that if people even minorly suspect that they might have apnea, I definitely recommend looking into it. Do you also recommend nutritionists? I'm just wondering. Yeah. You know, th- th- that's a great question. I've, I've worked, um, I've worked in the past with a lot of different people trying to bring them into my practice. Mm-hmm. I, nutrition is something that the, the simple answer is yes, there are some nutritionists that I, that I do refer out okay. to, but I've also, I've also somewhat brought the weight loss part of the program under my wing because how should I say this? I'm, I think out of the box of a lot of people mm-hmm. and I find that when it comes to weight loss, there's a lot of things that I disagree with that mm-hmm. go, go on in the world. Um, I believe weight loss ultimately starts with the mind. People mm-hmm. don't eat with their mouth or their stomach. They mm-hmm. eat with their mind. And you have to be able to apply that mental game first. And I think the reason that a lot of people struggle with weight and they struggle with these, you know, kind of yo-yo diets of mm. losing 30, 40 pounds right. and then gaining it back and losing it and gaining it back. And, you know, there's obviously a multi-billion dollar industry and all of that. Right. Which doesn't work. The, right. It doesn't work <laughs> right. because you're starving yourself. And right. the body's most essential core function is to survive. And when it feels like you're putting it into starvation, it will always win. It will always fight back. It's designed to survive. It does not want to lose anything. Right. So I've, so, and you know, I've seen in my experience, weight loss been mismanaged in a lot Mm. of ways. Um, I don't believe in, you know, I believe in a, in a customized diet. I don't Mm -hmm. believe there's a one size fits all solution. And I'm also not into ultra processed foods. A lot of these diets come, you know, take this milkshake and this protein Mm -hmm. bar and this like thing in a can that you can't recognize. That's, you're only eating 1200 calories a day. So you're going to lose weight. But that, first of all, it's not sustainable. Right. Second of all, it's simply not healthy. That's not the way our bodies were designed to use food as fuel 
And the more natural and the less processed, the better. That's what your body needs. Your body does not need some soy lecithin, you know, thing right. filled with palm oil and this and that. I'm like, this is this is not this is not food, you know. So I'm a big believer in first of all, starting with the mind. I use hypnotherapy as a method to begin the weight loss process because that's really where it starts. If you don't get the mm. mind on board, if that's always a mental struggle, that will you'll never be able to lose weight successfully. And then to be able to work with people in a sustainable, in a holistic, in a natural way that they're the the, the drivers in the seat. As with everything, I tell with, with all my clients, I'm trusting your intuition. I want to collaborate with you. I want to work with you to make this realistic. And so as opposed to coming up, you know, this is your diet. If you don't do this, you're not going to lose weight. I have to understand what's your personality what's your lifestyle what's your challenges what's going on at home is going on to work and this and that and put all that together so um i do sometimes you know refer out but i've also kind of developed that as as part of my program as well amazing that is really amazing oh i did want to find out about that rapid hypnotherapy so since you mentioned it how does that what is rapid transformation hypnotherapy right so there is a um i i really became interested in hypnotherapy because I, I was, you know, certainly trained in the more kind of classic conventional approaches in psychology. Mm. And I've studied cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy and a lot of the classic modalities that are out there. But I've, oh, I've, I kind of felt that this was, you know, just in my, my research and, and dealing mm. with clients of different experiences. I felt that a lot of what's going on in the world of psychology is really teaching more coping mechanisms. It's really there that like you have this anxiety or you have this depression or you have these negative thoughts or negative emotions. And we're going to teach you to kind of neutralize them, to kind of process them differently, to be mm. able to defuse them or challenge them or whatever the methodology is. And I felt that, that you were always kind of playing defense. And I really, I said, you know, I felt in my mind, what would be if we could really go in and help people rewrite those messages, rewrite that subconscious mind, rewrite that narrative. And when I started, I started off just learning about hypnosis in general. To me, it was super fascinating. I mean, I saw it, you know, work on myself. I saw it work in my own practice. I was just so interested to see how it worked. And then as I was, you know, kind of developing my skills in that, I found a, um, a British psychotherapist by the name of Marissa Peer, um, she developed a program called Rapid Transformation Therapy. Marissa basically took what was kind of considered generation one hypnosis as well as combining it with NLP neuro-linguistic programming. And she combined it to me, which is just this phenomenal psychological modality called Rapid Transformation Therapy, which is based in hypnosis, but it's also... It's also very much there to not only discover what's going on in the mind, but to be able to have the tools to be able for the mind to be able to heal within itself. So it's a very, it's a broad modality. It can use, be used for a lot of different things. A lot of what it's used for is psychosomatic, um, uh, diseases mm-hmm. and issues. Um, so weight loss is definitely a big, a big one of them. You know, smoking, addiction, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. She, she does, and I haven't, I personally don't specialize in this, but she has a whole subspecialty in infertility. Which, you know, I could, you could go, go on as your books. So There's interesting. Thousands of babies that have, have been born out of her system because in her experience, you know, obviously if there are clear medical issues, there are clear medical issues and these no need to take care of an infertility issue. But a lot of issues that will hold on to her body is really issues that are coming from our subconscious mind. Okay. I'm going to insert a trigger warning retroactively for that comment. Okay. Only because I know that for people who struggle with infertility, you know, a lot of times they're told, oh, it's in your mind. And if you, you know, I'm not saying that this works. I just want to insert a retroactive trigger warning because, you know, 
that's a hard struggle. That's a hard struggle to go through. And I'm also going to insert a caveat right up front for a lot of what we're talking about. Um, you know, I think that we're at the frontier of this mind body medicine. Um, it's not Western medicine necessarily. Western medicine has certain strengths. Evidence based medicine has certain strengths. Um, it's more, it, it, it works better with the disease model as opposed to the illness or or functional problem model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of suffering that we need to get help for. So I'm putting the caveat that not everything we talk about today may be evidence-based. It's, you know, everybody has to do their own research and decide for themselves. Um, but I don't want to be limited to just the evidence-based Western approach because it's not necessarily succeeding in these areas to be fair. Right. And I would, yeah. I would definitely agree with you in everything that you're saying. Mm. I don't mean to imply that any of these issues are, are easy or clear right. cut. Yeah. You know, I mean, infertility carries a, you know, a, a host of both physical and, and emotional challenges that go with right. it. Um, I'm only sharing this because, you know, I'm really, I'm not married to any methodology right. or any treatment. Mm-hmm. I want to go with what works for patients. I want to help amazing. people mm-hmm. and help do this. And when, you know, when you go on Amazon and you look at the reviews of her book that she wrote specifically on infertility, and when you see hundreds, if not thousands of five-star reviews from people who literally for 10, 20 years were trying right. everything in the medical world until they tried her approach because their subconscious mind was not allowing their body to conceive, mm-hmm. to me, that's at least a significant factor to be able to, is it the only factor? No, I don't mean right. to say it's the only factor, but I think as medicine is emerging and as healthcare is emerging, I believe in the next 20 or 30 years, there's going to be a breakthrough mm-hmm. in recognizing that psychosomatic connection to be able to connect the mind and body and to be able to make sure that both of those areas, sides of medicine are really working in congruence and working in harmony. Right. But infertility is very complex. And yep. so you don't want to be that person who has tried that and it hasn't worked and they just feel like it's victim blaming. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So I'm just, I'm just being difficult. That, no, no, that's fine. I've the, had these conversations. A, a healthy skepticism is the best way to go. Most of my clients, when they come to me, they have skepticism. And I think skepticism is a great approach. It really kind of teaches us to think critically about the issues and not accept things at face value. And I encourage everyone to, you know, to really ask these, these deep questions about their own healthcare and about those choices. Right. And also to be completely transparent, you don't take insurance. Correct. Right. So again, this is just out there for people. Um, I'm at the other end. I am the pediatrician and I do take insurance and I've got like 10 minutes to be with my patients. There's no (laughs) way, there's no way, you know, so what I do is I align myself with various um, specialists. I have a nutritionist I use, and I don't even think of it as a nutritionist to put my patients on a diet. Um, diet culture doesn't work, <laughs> um, but to help them with healthy habits. I think healthy habits are huge and there's no way in my 10 minute, 15 minute visit, you know, other than superficially that I can really have an impact and everybody's different. I always say, you know how they say it's not rocket science. It's rocket science, whether it's diet and it's true for sleep as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. It's, it's an approach that requires a lot of time and requires a lot of, you know, sensitivity and customization. So I, I value the fact that a lot of healthcare providers recognize, so to say, the more, you know, the, the, the more alternative or the more coaching style models right. to be in partnership with them and certainly exactly. not in, not in contradiction, but understand that we can all best, you know, best help people by working in tandem. Right. And I also say don't let evidence medicine be a prison. 
Right. <laughs> Just because we don't know it, you know, works for, you know, a significant population doesn't mean it won't help a specific person and specific individual. And we're still learning. I mean, we should understand that with COVID that we're, we're learning as we go. Right. It's true for the mind body connection as well. Right. You know, I, I used to struggle a lot with psoriasis mm-hmm. um, for about 10 years of my life. I had terrible psoriasis on my hands. And now, again, I'm not giving medical advice or telling anybody, right. you know, what to do with their own psoriasis. But it wasn't until I kind of, you know, I, I was going to a lot of kind of more classic dermatologists, very mm-hmm. highly trained, accredited dermatologists. And they were trying this treatment and that treatment and that treatment. And maybe it would help a little bit, but it always seemed to bounce back um, until I met different types of practitioners that were speaking to me about, you know, why is your body in a state of inflammation to begin with? Right. And what, and me personally, this was my own personal experience. When I started thinking like that, my skin cleared up and thank God I have not, you know, been struggling with that ever since. So I think, you know, you're right. Obviously Western medicine, my father is a internal medicine Mm -hmm. uh, specialist versus geriatric medicine. And obviously there's a lot of things that that is best designed to treat, but people shouldn't feel stuck that that's necessarily the only option. If they're not finding the solutions that they're looking for along the model. Right. And ideally you will work in tandem with your mainstream GP or internist or pediatrician. Most definitely. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, it's a problem when they, you know, if they don't want to, right. If they just say, Oh, that's just nonsense. And they're dismissive. That's, you know, a problem I see in a lot of families who come to me like, Oh, you won't really like, respect this. And I, I really, I try to listen and I try to be respectful. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the way you have a partnership. Absolutely. So let's go backwards a little bit and say why sleep is important. And, you know, you alluded a little bit to the different amount of hours of sleep that would be good for people. It's not the same. It's not just eight hours. Right. Right. You know, sleep, as you mentioned, and in, in my personal experience and experience with my clients, sleep is the foundation of our health. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of our physical well-being and mental well-being, focus, mood, concentration, drive, all of that comes from sleep. And if anyone's ever struggled with sleep or we've been up with babies or jalag or whatever, you know you get run down, you know you get sick, you know you can't concentrate and you're snappy and all of that. And sleep you know, it's just, I, I, I made a short video recently of the, what our body does when we sleep. Cause many people think like, oh, sleep's just kind of the body just in, in chill mode. But is it not true? I mean, when you're sleeping, your body's actually in overdrive. Um, you know, uh, resetting your, your memories, clearing out your neurons, resetting your immune system, allowing growth and, you know, red blood cell production and like all of these things that happen when you sleep. So sleep is really, really valuable. And as, as I recommend to people, it's an investment. Yeah, it's time, you know, and sometimes you have those real kind of type A personalities that are that are too busy to sleep, but generally that catches up with them. You know, sleep is an important investment. If you want to be successful, if you want to be healthy, which I'm sure we all do, um, you know, sleep is definitely, you, it's, you get your bang for your buck. In terms of time, so I usually recommend, you know, it's between six to eight hours mm-hmm. a night. Some people need more. And some people, you know, need less. In fact, there was an interesting genetic, um, I don't call it abnormality, but a genetic mutation that they discovered in the University of uh, San Francisco, the medical school there, where they actually found that there's a certain, it's a rare thing, but people have it, where people double, double sleep, essentially that for them, four hours of sleep is like what for a normal person is eight hours of sleep. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so th- these people thought they had a condition like, oh my gosh, like why am I going to bed at 10 and waking up at two? Like I must have insomnia. 
And in reality, they had this genetic uh, mutation. And for them, that was all the sleep they need. So some people really like that. You know, like the CEO is like, great, I can get in the office, you know, two in the morning. Or the guy can go to the gym, you know, before that. I mean, some people really don't like it. Some people really, really weirds out. Now, I don't tell people, like, if they can't, if they, if they're up at two in the morning, I generally think it's a problem. Right. But just that people should know, we all have, just as we all have personalities, mm-hmm. so too we have sleep personalities. And depending on time of life, certainly I deal, you know, with women at different stages mm-hmm. of their development, childbirth, you know, uh, postmenopause, like mm-hmm. people need different, you know, different amounts of sleep. And I, well, I encourage my clients to be sensitive to their bodies and, and almost kind of, you know, learn, have that inner awareness. What is my body telling me? Does my body feel run down? Do I feel like I'm dragging it around? Do I feel, you know, irritable? Do I need to get more sleep? And how best to do that? Or maybe not. And sometimes oversleeping is also a problem, you know, just as overeating, you know, if you go to the buffet and you have, you know, 10 plates of food, mm-hmm. you know, you, that's not what your body's designed to do. And, and it's, you're going to wreak havoc on your health because of that. So, so to oversleeping, and we have to be careful, you know, so, you know, teenagers are, are notorious for this, but, you know, the, the teenager sleeps until one o'clock in the afternoon and then he feels groggy all day. Well, you know, he feels groggy all day because he overslept. You know, that's just a product of that, of that reality. Right. So but to the, be able to find that, go ahead. Right. But the reason he's oversleeping is because the teen's clock is not set in sync with school. I don't understand why they don't just make school start later for teens. Why can't it start <laughs> at 11? I don't understand. As a night but owl, my, I, tell I, them I, took, I don't understand. I took my kids for, we had a, a snow, like a snow half day on Thursday. Mm-hmm. So I took my kids at 10, 1030 in the morning and they had a shower. They got up when they wanted. They had a nice breakfast. They were all in a better mood, you know, as opposed to like rushing them out the house that we do every morning. So yes, I, I definitely hear that. We do this to them. I've heard, no, I've heard late start as a way of handling this teen sleep you know, shift. It's a shift in their in their own cycle. Right. So the reason they're groggy is because they're trying to catch up on low sleep because they're still staying up late and then they're getting up early when they have to and they're not getting enough sleep. Right. So can you do that? Can you catch up on sleep? Is that okay? Yes and no. Um, right. <laughs> but basically, the, there, there, there's a phenomenal book by William Dement called The Promise of Sleep. Mm. And he describes basically the way that sleep debt works. Let's assume for an average person, we'll take a middle number. Let's assume their prime is seven hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. That's really, you know, what, what's good for them. But let's say on average weeknight, they're getting five hours of sleep, not seven. So that means every night they're going into sleep debt two hours. Now that sleep debt, you can't just think, well, you know, I'm going to, I'll, I'll you know, have poor sleep for five, five days in a row, and then I'll just catch up on the weekend. It doesn't work like that. That, let's say, 10 hours of sleep debt that you acquired in that week can't be made up and it stays with you for up to two weeks after that. So even if, let's say, starting you, you made a resolution on, you know, January 1st, I'm now going to sleep seven hours a night. Well, you, if for another two weeks, you still have that sleep debt in your system until you kind of fully sleep that out of your cycle. Um, and then, you know, people who try to kind of binge sleep during the week, mm-hmm. or sorry, you know, to, to cut down their sleep during the week, and then they, you know, binge sleep over the weekend, that's also not healthy because it's just not what our bodies are designed to do. It's much better to try to have consistency and yes, you know, it, I myself get a little less sleep on the weekdays and a little right. more sleep on the weekends, but to be able to have some sort of consistency because when it's, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, having a, a crash sleep during the week and then you're sleeping, you know, 13, 14 hours on the weekend, generally people's bodies, you know, especially post teenage years does not respond well to that. And it's not optimal, you know, for our health. It's not optimal for our mind. And, and most people feel groggy and, and hungover when they do that kind of thing. Right. And, and also there are some conditions where having regular sleep really matters like migraine. 
which oh, I have. Yeah. So <laughs> it really yeah. matters. Oh, 100%. Yeah, def- definitely. There's a lot, a lot of conditions that, um, that regular sleep really, really helps us to be able to, to, to have the best. And oftentimes people come to me where their sleep cycle gets thrown off and they can't fall asleep. So, you know, cl- textbook definition is to be able to have that consistency to give your body those cues approximately going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time, um, can be very helpful for people to realign their sleep cycle and get in touch with that again. So what are the most common sleep issues? We talked a little bit about, we actually talked a fair amount about apnea, so we'll leave that part out. Mm-hmm. Um, what else do you work with most commonly? All right. So I would say the most common thing I work with is anxiety-induced mm-hmm. insomnia. That's that's really what I'm seeing day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Um, people will either have a hard time falling asleep or they can fall asleep fine, but then they're up and then they can't go back to sleep. Um, you know, I definitely see a lot of of that. Uh, you know, sometimes we're, we're dealing, you know, with a more kind of generalized exhaustion and then trying to figure that out. Sometimes we're dealing with nightmares and, you know, understanding how the you know, kind of cognitive element, like they're sleeping, but their sleep is very scary and very, you know, mm. disturbing to them. So, you know, it's really, um, and, and so, sometimes it's behavioral, you know, sometimes I'll get the person who's like, I can sleep fine. I'm just up till three in the morning watching YouTube videos every night. And, you know, these things are addictive you know and these, these things are like it's not just easy to say, well, let's put your phone away no these people you know there's a real technology addiction out there i um, mean so sometimes we're working on the more behavioral aspect of things just to really enable people to you know to to be able to give themselves time to sleep and sometimes you know we'll even deal that people have a low you know they're almost kind of self-deprecating and like they don't allow their body to kind of relax and recover they always have to do things for others they always have to be on alert there's you know a lot that goes into that so you know i i see like a wide variety of things but Ultimately, it all it all kind of boils down to you know making sure that they're prioritizing their sleep and they're and they're getting that quality and quantity that they need. Mm. And so, I'm sure you work on sleep hygiene as well, which we we alluded to and we talked about going to sleep and waking up at you know reasonably similar hours, ideally mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. weekend as well. Mm-hmm. Ideally, um, you mentioned screen time. How much time would you say you need to get off your screens before going to sleep? I would say typically it's an hour. You know, an again, d- different different people are sense, you know, so many people just fall asleep watching the TV, you know, like I'm not, although that's not, you know, classically mm-hmm. good. Um, you know, if, if I, it's all about an individualized approach mm-hmm. in my experience, and this is kind of something that separates me from a lot of experts in the sleep mm-hmm. world. I don't believe in a lot of hard rules. Mm. Um, I find that, you know, oftentimes when you go to kind of the classic cognitive behavioral therapist, mm. the TBTI for insomnia, they'll, you know, they'll put on a lot of rules. They'll try sleep deprivation, which means they're going to, you know, kind of cut down your sleep window to a very short amount of time. You know, you have to be doing this by this time. You'll be doing that. By the time. Don't stay in bed for more than 20 minutes. Turn off this. You know, like there's a, it's, it's a very rigid process. Mm. And for some people that works. And, you know, I, I appreciate that process. I, I learned that process. And for some people I do that. But I find for a lot of people that actually kind of makes the situation worse starts putting all this pressure and all this rigidity Mm. on on a thing that should be very pleasant i mean when quote-unquote normal people get into bed you know there there are no rules there are no uh you know uh, laws that you know hard fat you know they get into bed they, they fall asleep and so my approach is more trying to mirror them back to that kind of normal interesting make it natural Make it natural. So, so you know, I, as, I, as I tell my clients, I have rules, but all, all rules were meant to be broken. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes, you know, the classically, if you wake up in the middle of the night, don't look at the clock. 
Okay, you know, that works for a lot of people, but some people actually causes them anxiety by like, I just need to know what time it is. Like, right. if I knew what time it is, that would settle me down. And like, by taking away the so clock, I'm more yeah. anxious that, you know, so everyone, you really have to kind of feel out what makes sense for them um, and, and work with them and work their natural body chemistry and their natural personality to be able to find that solution. That that is that really makes so much sense. So CBT, I just to go back just a little bit what that is because I know I looked it up on my medical um like encyclopedia thing that I use called Up to Date, and they basically said there's sleep medication you should try to avoid sleep medication. CBTI is the gold standard. So what is it? Yeah, you know, so CBTI stands for cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in the medical literature it's considered the gold standard. I wrote mm-hmm. an article why I don't consider it the gold mm-hmm. standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously it works for some people. Like I said, right. with any of this, this is an individual, individual approach. Right. Mm-hmm. If CBTI works, then great. Um, I have colleagues that practice CBTI, and, and, and I respect that, you know, for those clients who work for Oftentimes, clients come to me. I've just positioned myself in the sleep market. Their CBTI dropouts. Um, and CBTI didn't work for them, and now they're like, well – they told me that was the gold standard. Like, there's no hope for me. That mm. there's no hope for me is the worst thing you can do for sleep. Because when there's right. despair, when there's like, I've contracted this incurable illness and like, and, and no one's able to help me, that just, that'll just shut down your sleep, you know, a lot, you know? So I always believe that there's always a solution and there's always hope. Um, and so classically CPTI, it's usually a six week program, depending on who's practicing it. And it usually starts off, like I said, so they're usually restricting your time in bed. So they might say, you know, your bedtime is from 11 to five and you can't get in bed before, you know, 11 and you can't wake up past five, seven days a week. And the goal of that is to kind of like train your body. This is the only sleep I'm going to give you. And therefore you're going to learn to sleep then. And then, you know, kind of slowly they open up that window. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, kind of, you have to have your wind down time at 10 and, you know, you have to be in bed at 11 and if you can't sleep you have to get out of bed after 20 minutes and try something else you know and then you go back to bed when you're tired and you know it's a lot of that and it, to me it's focused on that behavioral side that's cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. it's very much behavioral heavy and the you know in terms of like you know the person will say what do i do with all these you know anxious thoughts and you know tensions and distress and all that so classic cbti will tell you you know kind of monitor it like write it down they're also very big into keeping sleep journals which i actually don't agree with um but again i just i'm not they say keep a sleep journal exactly what time did you fall asleep what time were you up and to me that just creates like obsession and, and neurosis you know over regarding sleep um it's very structured and for some people it may be really really good right and i can see how it's measurable by the way one way you can get something to be evidence-based is you can measure it yes yes and and definitely having that you know having that data and that's obviously why you know this is the program that's uh you know that's so to say well well understood amongst many circles um and generally for in terms of what they do with their thoughts the the cognitive behavioral therapist Classic will teach them to challenge those thoughts of like, you know, their, their mind tells them, oh yeah, you're never going to sleep again. Or, you know, like what happens if you don't sleep tomorrow? You better fall asleep now or else. And they're, you know, the, they'll train to like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I, you know, slept fine for 25 years. You know, I know I'm able to sleep to challenge those thoughts. Um, again, it works for some people and I, I respect that for those it worked for. To me, both in terms of the kind of overemphasis on the behavioral side of things, mm-hmm. as well as that, kind of challenge the thought perspective, um, to me, that's outdated. And if you take a look, like if you, if you understand where the world of psychology is in terms of anxiety and depression, 
this is true from my speaking to colleagues and understanding the professional feeling, they're actually moving away from what's called like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy in its, in its original form. Mm-hmm. And they're moving towards the acceptance and commitment therapy model, um, you know, which, which is, you know, considered kind of the new goal standard in anxiety. And to me, there are some sleep people that are kind of bringing that into the world of insomnia. Um, but it's, it's kind of slow, you know, <laughs> like still- what's acceptance and commitment therapy. Acceptance and commitment therapy is, I mean, essentially the model, as opposed to challenging the thought, you become used to diffusing from the thought and accepting the thought and merely kind of changing your reaction to it. Not oh. trying to counter the thought. You'd be like, okay, you know, the anxious thought is here. I'm going to let it, I'm going to monitor right. it. I'm going to cope. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, objectify myself. I'm going to, you know, just, just to be that um, more separate, create distance from myself and the thought to be able to gauge that. Um, you know, so like the happiness chap, if you heard, if you heard of that book, um, kind of mm. popularized acceptance and commitment therapy. And, you know, it, it's considered the new, the new wave, as they say, uh, of, of cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, it, it works for a lot of people. Um, there's a, uh, there's, there's a, a, a Dr. Meadows who wrote a book, um, called The Sleep School, um, where he describes this, uh, he basically was the, one of the first sleep therapists to incorporate acceptance and commitment therapy into insomnia. Most, I, I believe that's one, one step better than mm-hmm. the CBT model. Um, it's still not my, it's still not my ideal model, but I, you know, I appreciate what it is and it does work for some people and they have an app that, you know, can be very helpful. So, um, you know, I've seen that emerging and like I said, both CBT and ACT are good. But to me, they're still at the end of the day coping mechanisms. I want to be proactive. I believe that our subconscious mind gets caught in these negative processes because ultimately our mind wants to help us. Our mind is designed to keep us alive and keep us safe. And that's what it's designed to do. And so it's try by, by having these anxious thoughts, it's not trying to hurt us. It's, it thinks there's a threat and therefore it's trying to get our attention. Now, it doesn't know that it's not a threat and it's actually keeping us up, but we have to teach our subconscious mind what we do want it to think as opposed to merely kind of, you know, like a, you know, just coping with the, these negative thoughts. The subconscious mind wants our instruction. Mm-hmm. It's waiting for us to tell us, what do you want me to think? I'm just here to help you. Right. And that, in my opinion, is where RTT comes in and using, you know, the power of neurolinguistic programming, giving in bold language and pictures pictures and images and emotions, we have to retrain the subconscious mind that which we want it to believe. What's RTT? <laughs> Sorry, uh, ra- ra- rapid transformation therapy, that which we spoke about, that style of hypnotherapy we spoke oh, about. Oh, the hypnotherapy, the rapid transformation yeah. hypnotherapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So that's that's a lot of different methods. You also, in your website, um, have another abbreviation, ERP. What's that? <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it, exposure and response. Um, uh, Prevention. Program. Oh, right, right. right. Oh, so, so that's one of those that are used for phobias, correct? You know, classically, um, this is used for um, for for OCD. Mm-hmm. You know, and so and they, this is really, you know, we we put these terms, we put labels on these terms. Mm-hmm. But when someone comes to you, these are very amorphous kind of things. Somebody comes to you and they have a hard time sleeping. Well, is that a phobia? Is that an anxiety? Is that tension? Is that um, fear? Is that, you know, is it an obsessive thought? And the answer is like, well, it, it's kind of a little bit of everything. Could be everything. You know? So it's hard to put people in a box. I mean, classically, you know, you, the classic case of the OCD is a person who feels like their hands are, you know, covered in germs and they have to wash them, they have to wash them, they have to wash them, or checking the door, checking the door, or, you know, things checking like that. Checking the clock to see what time it is. 
Right, right. And, you know, what mm-hmm. I found for a lot of people that come to me, that, so to say, anxiety, it's not as much an anxiety as it is an obsessive thought, mm-hmm. that the thought just kind of keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps triggering. And so, you know, when, when we kind of, when we're sensitive to it and we speak it out and we realize that's where it's coming from, so at that point, you know, sometimes we'll use, I, I've developed a, an exposure, um, a, an exposure, uh, a, a program specifically to be able to help the mind restructure that thought as opposed to always running away from it or trying to defuse it or trying to challenge it. Sometimes the mind actually needs to take control of that thought, to take ownership of that thought. And then it's simply going to stop chasing us because the anxiety chases us because mm. it wants to get that attention. That obsessive thought, you know, keeps in this loop. And then people try to, well, no, that's a bad thought. Oh, that's evil go out of my head and then that just kind of continues this ping pong match in their head as opposed to the exposure model would say no i'm actually going to take ownership of the thought i'm going to oversaturate myself with the thought i'm going to become comfortable with this thought to the point that it's no no longer going to be keep chasing after me okay it's kind of parallel to the acceptance model in a way it's it's almost the acceptance model is is neutrality it's like sweden during the war you know like we're not taking sides you know okay it's a proactive i'm taking this negative thought and i'm actively bringing it up i'm going to make a song about it i'm going to replay it to myself i'm going to put a note in my pocket and you know i I find again different people have uh, succeed at different things but i find that that can actually be very helpful um to really kind of be able to drive that um you know to recreate that pattern in our minds that it's no longer a threatening thought that bothers us. Interesting. So do you have um, clients that really have greater levels of OCD or anxiety or other mental health concerns um, that you feel that you should be referring them out? Because you're, you're, you're a sleep coach. Yes. Correct. Yes. You do not have certification as any specific therapist. Am I correct? And besides rapid transformation therapy, but yes. Okay, rapid transformation. That's that's a specific certification that you have. Yeah, mm. you know, and, and that's 100% true. Most clients, I would say most, a lot of clients mm. come to me, they're already, they have either worked with other therapists in the past mm. or they're currently working with other therapists. And I recommend that, you know, I'm, I'm always here to collaborate. I recommend that they continue. Mm. I work well, you know, with, you know, other styles of therapy. And and yes, you know, obviously if a person has, you know, generalized OCD in 10 areas of their life and sleep is one of them. So I'll definitely help them on, on sleep. And the great thing about mental health is generally when we conquer or master one area mm-hmm. that will spill over. As I tell most of my clients, you know, if you have anxiety-driven insomnia, well, the tools I'm going to teach you are going to enhance your life overall. Not only are we hopefully going to keep our, you know, cure your sleep issue, but you're going to feel more calm. You're going to feel more in control of your mind. You're going to feel more centered and balanced in all areas of your life. And that's a great benefit. As I tell people, um, insomnia, in my perspective, is sometimes our greatest teacher because, you know, everything's going fine until your sleep breaks down. And sometimes that kind of forces us to take stock of our life, to take stock of our physical and mental health, and really to be able to gain these skills. Um, so that being said, I believe that sleep has a wide-ranging implication of the skills that I'm teaching people do. But you're right. Certainly, if someone has, you know, kind of generalized anxiety or generalized OCD, or, you know, if it's trauma or things like that, um, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to be the everything therapist, everybody. Right. And I, and I, and I will recommend that they work with the, the different type of therapists as well. Right. And what about the role of medications? And I'm thinking simultaneously about anxiety medications. Um, and also sleep medications. 
a lot of clients come to me on both of those. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first thing I say, you know, it's part of my policy form. Whenever you're touching medication, it should be done in consultation with the doctor that prescribed it. You know, so that's point number one. Point number two, I personally have not seen sleep medication be necessary in most cases mm-hmm. because sleep medication is a band-aid for most people. Right. You know, it, it says, I don't know why you're not sleeping, but here, this sedative pill is going to knock you out. And to me, it's just indicative that we haven't obviously gone to the root of where the sleep is coming from and cured it from the inside. So to me, I've never really seen sleep medication be a great long-term solution Coupled with the fact that, you know, especially the heavier sleeping pills, the Ambien's, you know, the other mm-hmm. benzos and whatnot, they're habit forming, they have negative side effects, um, you know, they're linked to long-term chronic health issues. So, you know, it's just never a great long-term solution. In terms of, um, you know, in terms of the more anti-anxiety stuff, which, which I definitely see a lot. So at that point, we really have to ask the question, are you taking an anti-anxiety medication because you have a sleep issue? And, you know, really, once we would cure that anxiety regarding mm-hmm. sleep, mm-hmm. so then you wouldn't need that. That's my goal with people. You know, if they tell me, you know, I have to take a, you know, a half a milligram of clonopin, but, you know, to go to bed, which I get a lot, um, I would say, you know, okay, you know, we're, we're going to work on that, but I, I want to get you to the point that you're not going to need that medication. I want to wean off that medication completely to the point that you're, and, and thank God, you know, we've done that many, many times with, with clients. Where, so to say, I do have kind of a more of a question mark in my head. And, you know, again, I'm collaborating with a client. Mm. If they tell me, look, you know, I'm on an SSRI. Um, you know, I'm on a low dose of SSRI. I tried going off of it three times. And when I do, I just feel down. I feel mm-hmm. generally anxious. I'm not sleeping well. And, you know, to me, this is kind of part of my life. So I say, look, and there's no obviously, obviously kind of trigger of where that anxiety is coming from. I do believe that people, you know, are on a spectrum of serotonin production and people who are just naturally producing low elements of serotonin, SSRIs can be amazing and can be lifesavers and, and, and can be great. You know, they shouldn't feel it's a stigma or a taboo and this and that. And those are great tools that we have our generation to really be able to help them. And I'm not necessarily interested in getting them off that SSRI if, you know, that, that really helps them and they feel that's a great long-term solution. So so I try to kind of find that balance. I'm not anti-medication, mm-hmm. but I do kind of question, like, why do you really need medication? And is it really an essential tool for you? Is it really helpful? Or is it merely just kind of masking over the problem and we really want to try to work off of it? Right. I mean, there's going to be a spectrum. So there's going to be people at the most extreme end who are taking medication to fall asleep that are anxiolytic, but they're taking it to fall asleep because it makes them sleepy and they don't have an anxiety disorder. And there's going to be a whole spectrum to people who need to be on medication. And I I do always have the concern that a more alternative approach may be an anti-medication approach and there should be no shame in needing to take medication. We don't even have to go into the, down the rabbit hole of, is it truly a serotonin imbalance or it's just, you need it for whatever reason. It doesn't matter. It's something that you need. I've seen too many people who you can tell when they're no longer taking their medication just by having a simple conversation. Right. Right. You know, so I, 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 I encourage my clients to do that, which is going to be most helpful for them, most helpful for their families. And, you know, sometimes SSRIs are are lifesavers and really, you know, can, can help people lead, you know, tremendously productive lives. So, you know, I'm, I'm all about balance and all about finding the right solution for them. Right. So just like people should be working, you know, together with their healthcare professional, they should also be working with a mental health professional who's able to prescribe medication because hmm. that's not something that you could do. Correct. Yeah. Right. Just yeah. making it, it crystal clear. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes I'll even be in the situation that someone comes to me and, you know, this is rare, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, look, I, you have you have an acute anxiety regarding sleep. 
I recommend you go to a doctor, you get a week's dose of Klonopin, mm. and you know you have it for three days to take the edge off this, because I can tell you're so tired now, you're so frustrated now, you don't even have the mental, so to say, drive and wherewithal to work together on these kind of you know things that we're working on. I need you to take a break, I need you to you know have that, and I find that sometimes when they take the edge off, even knowing that you know they're not they're not going to take it past three days, but they have that medication, just to be able to kind of find that balance, I have recommended people do that, and you know like I said, these are not I do not prescribe medication, you know I recommend right. doctors that they go to, um, but. You know, so again, it's, I'm never anti-medication, but I find that it has to be a tool in our disposal right. and knowing obviously how to get off of it and how to, you know, kind of cure the issue. Right. And, and medication to fall asleep should really be short term. Even the up to date says that quite clearly. It's not meant to be a long term solution. Okay. Um, so that's really, really very helpful. Okay. One thing we didn't talk about yet is the functional medicine piece that you do. And I'm going to again, put my little caveat out there. This is not mainstream medicine and I'm not here to endorse any particular approach. Um, please work with your healthcare professional at the same time, but what is your functional medicine piece? Sure. You know, and, and, and that's a great question. And, and like I said from the beginning, I'm not married to any one right. style of medicine or healthcare or, or mental health. I only encourage or, you know, really kind of brought on a functional medicine team onto my practice when, when I originally opened up, I was always, you know, it's all in your mind, you know, mind over matter. You can mm-hmm. conquer everything with your mind until you really realize that, that you can't. And there, you know, right. there, there are, you know, imbalances within our bodies. And so I felt that I would be doing a disservice not to bring this side of, of healthcare, you know, as an option for people. And I always explain the options. I'm never, you know, kind of pushing anything, but, um, I really felt that for, for some people, for a lot of people, if it's not clearly cognitive, you know, they, they let's say I have, I have a client and they say, you know, um, I, I, I don't know why I can't sleep. You know, I'm a very calm person. I have no anxiety regarding sleep. You know, this has been going on for, you know, 20, 20 years, or maybe it's been going on, you know, since the childbirth or since menopause or this and that. Um, you know, I'm cool, calm and collected. I've had no trauma in my past. I'm, you know, I'm slim. I'm doing everything right. And I just, you know, I still can't sleep or, you know, I have this, you know, kind of issue. I, I keep waking up in the middle of the night or I have, you know, hot sweats in the middle of the night. So again, I always recommend that they work with their conventional medicine mm-hmm. doctor and, you know, making sure to rule anything else out. Out, but I find, um, you know, when it's when that, and sometimes even within that, I do recommend that you know, let's explore your subconscious mind just to rule out that there's no, there's nothing going on, you know. Because I spoke to a lady earlier this week, um, you know, we, we spoke about her case. She's like, well, I don't, you know, I'm not a stressed and anxious person. And then we started working together. She's like, well, you know, I, I did, my sister did pass away when I was nine, and I was the, this, uh, you know, child of Holocaust survivors. And you know, so I, I haven't, I haven't even gone to therapy with her. I'm like, you know, you should just think about. Perhaps, I'm not, I'm not saying definitively, perhaps there is a subconscious element that's really, you know, kind of interrupting that. But assuming that we rule out that, that side of things, um, where I found that, that, um, functional medicine can really be very effective is if it's not a black and white issue. There's no classic, uh, you know, kind of, uh, black and white case that, you know, there's a disease or a pathology that's causing this. So I found that when functional medicine specialists look at a person, they're really, they're really asking the question, why? Why is this person's body not sleeping? How can we go down to the idiosyncrasies and the uniquenesses of their biochemical tapestry to understand and ask the questions, where could that imbalance be? Um, and I found that, that oftentimes it can be very, very successful at being able to kind of repair and, and reboot someone's systems. Um, and that's really, you know, I've, I've really had a privilege of working together every time. 
time that I meet with my team. I, I learn a lot. I consider myself a student of sleep every day. I'm learning it from my doctors, from my clients, um, you know, from my peers. And I found that that's going to be real, a really helpful tool in our disposal to understand, you know, where those things are coming from. Right. So let's define what functional medicine is, because there's a lot of terms being thrown around, including integrative medicine, which integrates, you know, mainstream and more alternative approaches. Functional is, by definition, a more alternative approach. Correct. And it looks for the root causes. Yes. Would you say that's correct of problems? Um, so, again, I'm just throwing my caveat out there that this, by definition, is not accepted across the board. It's It's not. A mainstream approach, it's not something that everybody's going to want to do. Um, but as I said earlier, there's so much we don't know. And when you have a problem and you're looking for a solution, you know, especially if it's something that won't hurt and might help, your choice to do it or not. Right. So right. I think it's interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, if it's, Sometimes you, know, you have doctors that move back and forth. I know Dr. Mark Hyman, who's one of the big, you know, spokesmen for for mm. functional medicine in the country. Um, he is a uh, he's a former MD, and that you know he was kind of converted over to the uh, the side of functional medicine. I believe he has a functional medicine clinic at the Cleveland Clinic. Actually, yeah, the Cleveland yeah. Clinic has a functional medicine clinic. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. So again, is it for everybody? No, right. I don't believe it's for everybody. But I've seen um, I I've seen the approach work well for a lot of people. Enough so that when they're not finding solutions in kind of the more classic Western medical system, I found that functional medicine can be very insightful and very refreshing and very, you know, really kind of helping give people hope to be able to how to you know, how to drive those systems forward. Right. And it's not a required, you know, piece of your what you do. It's something that can be added on or, or not. Correct. Yeah, most definitely. Which is which is very interesting. So this is a lot, a lot of information. I'm sure we could talk a lot more, but it's Erev Shabbos. <laughs> so I just want to know how people can find you. Sure. Um, so you can go, go online. My website is executivesleep.org. Um, or you can email me at doron, D-O-R-O-N, at executivesleep.org. And I'm happy to, I give a free consultation to anyone who would be interested in speaking. Um, and I'm happy to, to help the world sleep better. And there was a great article in Mishpacha magazine about you. Thank you. Thank That's you how much. I hopefully, found out about you. <laughs> hopefully we're having another coming up soon. Oh, awesome. So I have to thank you so, so much for doing this with me and wish you a good Shabbos. Amen. Thank you so much. A pleasure speaking with you. And, you uh, too. And best of luck with all of your endeavors. Thank you. Be well. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.